If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. We began this great chapter on last week, and we saw on last week that there were many things in Revelation chapter 7 that we have heard before, um, but didn't understand and perhaps didn't understand rightly, that there are many questions that needed to be answered, and that in answering those questions, it would tend to lead us to an interpretation of Revelation chapter 7, that although it is um, familiar historically, um, does not align with the most dominant and prevalent interpretation of our day. Talked about the dominant and prevalent interpretation of Revelation chapter 7 and that number that we know perhaps better than any other number in Revelation, 144,000, and how we have, uh, for the most part, been told through popular books and popular teachers, and again, the predominant view of our day, that that 144,000 represented uh, ethnic Jews who were sealed after the secret rapture of the Gentile church. We saw, however, that a careful examination of that passage and of those numbers led to a different reading, a different understanding, and a different interpretation of Revelation chapter 7. What I want to do is read the chapter today in its entirety and then look at the second portion. We looked at the first portion on last week. We'll look at the second portion. We'll go back to the first portion and show how the second portion actually fortifies the interpretation and the conclusions that we came to on last week and then make further observations as John gives us an even broader picture of what it is that he is trying to communicate through his use of these numbers. So if you'll join me, Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, we will try to get a better understanding of the flow of this chapter. Remember, Revelation chapter 7 comes right after we have seen the judgments of the seals in Revelation chapter 6, but before the slitting of the seventh seal. Also, we recognize that in Revelation chapter 7, we've actually gone back to the first seal, to before the first seal was broken and before the judgments began, that those who are sealed on earth answer the great question at the end of chapter 6. As the world has been judged and this judgment is almost complete, the question comes in verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? You can't understand Revelation chapter 7 apart from understanding that question. John sees the judgment of the world in Revelation chapter 6. This judgment is almost complete And the question comes, as God's wrath is poured out on the world, who can stand? How can anyone survive this complete wrath of God? And again, complete wrath of God, because we talk about seven seals, and that number seven is extremely important in that it is a number of completion or completeness when we read it in the Scriptures, when we read it in in, in Revelation. Um, And so right after that question is asked, We go from the sixth seal, not to the seventh seal, but to Revelation chapter 7 and a different kind of sealing, if you will. There is where we read, after this I saw, please pay attention, I've said this before, but pay attention to his sensory perception, what he sees and then what he hears. That's going to be very important. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. 
And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Again, clues pointing us back to the beginning. He says, do not harm anything until I've sealed the servants. Well, if this happens after the sixth seal, it makes no sense. If, however, he has gone back to the first seal to fill in information, it makes all the sense in the world. And I heard, again, he went from seeing to hearing, just like in Revelation chapter 5 before the throne. He went from seeing to hearing and then back to seeing again. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked. He didn't see 144,000. He heard 144,000. He saw the angels. He heard a number. Now he looks. Again, in Revelation chapter 5, he sees and then he hears and then he sees again. In Revelation chapter 5, he goes back and forth between the lamb and the lion. But the lamb and the lion represent the same individual, Christ. Here he goes back and forth between hearing 144,000 and seeing a great multitude that no one could number, as we've said on last week. And here, in a literary sense, we see the way it flows together. The 144,000 that he heard and the multitude that he sees are the same people. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Notice seven things. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, now we're not going to deal with this this week, but it's important for the point that we're making about the flow of the chapter. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. Now, again, we'll, we'll make this point again next week when we get to it. But if the 144,000 represent ethnic Jews only who were sealed after the secret rapture of the Gentile church, and the secret rapture of the Gentile church happens before the great tribulation so that the Gentile church doesn't go through the great tribulation, then why is this great multitude that no one could number the multitude that made its robes white in the great tribulation. If they are not ethnic Jews, but came from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. 
and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in their midst of the, in, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And all God's people said, amen. It is difficult not to get into all of this. It is difficult. To, it was difficult last week just to pause at those first eight verses. It's difficult this week just to deal with verses 9 through 12. But we have to understand this. We've got to get it all and soak it all in. And on this week, we look at the gospel as it advances and the great fruit that it bears. It becomes more obvious when we look at the chapter in its entirety that John is making one statement about one group of people. In the first part of the chapter, he references this group of people with the highly symbolic number that has been used before in Revelation and is used again in Revelation to represent the people of God throughout the ages. The 12 elders and the 12 apostles, the 24 before the throne representing the people of God in the Old and the New Testament. Now we have 12 times 12 times 1,000, which gets us the number 144,000. We looked on last week at this unique list of the tribes, this list that doesn't exist anywhere else in the entire Bible in this way, and how we couldn't really explain why John would give us this list in this particular way until we realized that this list was a symbolic rendering of the same group of individuals that we see before the throne in this innumerable multi-ethnic multitude. And so he gives us this list that is out of birth order, putting Judah first. It's not completely unusual for Judah to be listed first when especially you are pointing to the supremacy of Christ and he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Reuben being listed second, and then the children of the concubines being listed next, completely out of order, to make a statement. Manasseh being listed, but not Ephraim, which is confusing, because if we're talking about the tribes of Israel, you list Ephraim and Manasseh and not Joseph. If you're talking about the sons of Israel, you list Joseph and not Ephraim and Manasseh. Here they list Joseph and Manasseh, but not Ephraim. What is he trying to communicate? He also leaves off the tribe of Dan. So that just doesn't make sense to us at all. If you're talking about the tribes and the land that they inherit, you wouldn't have Levi. If you're talking about the sons, you don't have Manasseh, and you don't exclude Dan. But if you are making a statement using a symbolic number, talking about the people of God as a whole, and if you are talking about the inclusion of outsiders and particularly the inclusion of Gentiles, then you do add Manasseh. If the statement has to do with being sealed and enduring through the great tribulation without taking the beast's mark because you belong to God and will not worship the beast and will not commit apostasy or idolatry, then you exclude the tribe of Dan because that's exactly what they were guilty of taking the ten tribes off into. Makes all the sense in the world. Makes even more sense when you realize the use of his sensory perception. I saw, then I heard, then I saw. The same thing that we see in Revelation chapter 5. When he comes before these seals, and, and nobody can break the seal on this scroll. But then the angel tells him something that he hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is worthy. But when he looks... He doesn't see a lion. He sees 
a lamb. Is the lion someone different than the lamb? No. Are the 144,000 a group different than the innumerable multi-ethnic multitude? No. It's the same group. One is looking at this group on the earth, being sealed before the great tribulation. Right afterwards, we see this group in heaven, having come through the great tribulation. But there are some things that we see about this group that are extremely important for us to make note of. So as we look at verses 9 through 12, let's make note of this group. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. This talks about the reach of the gospel. A great multitude that no one could number. More numerous than we could imagine. This is incredibly important for a number of reasons. First, it's important to John. Think about who John is, where John is, his circumstances. John is on the island of Patmos. Why is he on the island of Patmos? Well, he's on the island of Patmos because he's been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's been exiled to the island of Patmos. The gospel is going forth and people are being saved. But apart from what we see in Acts with those numbers, 2,000 and 5,000 and 10,000 and so on and so forth, we don't see the church advancing like that throughout all of the known world. There were churches, to be sure, but for the most part, they were small in number. We did not have the gatherings of thousands of people in Ephesus, for example, or in Corinth, or in Laodicea, or Thessalonica, so on and so forth. See, John didn't live during a time where there were millions upon millions upon multiplied millions of Christians. Here he is at the end of the first century. And though the gospel is advancing for sure, there's no way to know what the end result is going to be. And certainly no way, especially because they believed that the return of Christ was absolutely imminent and would probably happen within their own lifetimes. Certainly they had no way of imagining just how many people would be saved before the end came. John couldn't have wrapped his number, wrapped his mind around that number. Secondly, take this away. You, just like John, should be made optimistic about the reach of the gospel when you read this number. John sees this number. Here he is on the island of Patmos. The apostles are dying off. He's the last. He's wondering if this thing is going to take. What's going to happen? When is the end going to come? Whom is God going to gather? How is he going to gather them? How many will be gathered? How long do we have? He doesn't know any of that. Now he sees this great multitude. But he, he sees more people than are in existence in his world. Let me say that again. If John's looking at the multitude of Christians who will be saved through this great tribulation, by the way, the tribulation that he announces himself to be a part of in chapter 1, he's looking at a number that is larger than the population of the world during his lifetime. John, there are going to be more people saved by the work of Jesus Christ than exist on the world today. That's good news, y'all. Christ is going to have the fullness of his reward, and it's greater than anything you can imagine, John. You know what? The same is true when said to you. Christ is going to have the fullness of his reward, and that number is greater than anything that you or you or you or you or you or I can imagine. We tend to be incredibly pessimistic 
about the advance of the gospel. Many of us tend to think, it's ironic, we, we, we talk about lost people and, and how lost people are just so deceived because they think, you know, there's only like four or five people who are going to be in hell. You know, Hitler, Mussolini, people who do horrible things that end up on the news, but certainly not just ordinary people who live down the street. So we, we always think, we look at lost people and we go, you just don't understand. You don't understand the holiness of God. You don't understand the righteousness of God. And you think hell could be contained within a room of this size where there's only a few people. You know what? We're guilty on the other end. We really don't believe that there are going to be that many people in heaven. We really don't believe that there are that many people who get it. We really don't believe there are that many Christians in the world today because the fact of the matter is they can only be truly Christian if they agree with us on everything. And how many people is that? If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. And so here we are. I get it. Nobody else does. It's like Elijah. We're just absolutely convinced that we're the only ones who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. God says to Elijah, God says to John, and God says to you, get over yourself. There's a lot more people going to heaven than you think, and that's good news. That's good news. This ought to also motivate us toward mission and evangelism. John looks and he sees this number. Do you know what that says to him? The work that you have been called to do will be successful. Amen. That's good news. John looks and he sees this number that's larger than the number of people who exist on the earth at that time. What that says is the mission of the church will be successful, successful and it will bear fruit. The gospel will bear much fruit. As we preach, God is going to save his elect and there are more of them than you can possibly imagine. So go preach and preach and preach and preach and preach. Because you can't preach to enough people to make this come to pass. Amen? We ought to be passionate about seeing those souls come to faith in Christ. And we ought to be confident about the fact that the gospel that we preach will bear much fruit. Not terrified, because there's so few people who are ever going to hear and believe, but confident, because there's more people than you could possibly imagine. It should also humble us. Because, I, I mean, really, quite honestly, we, we think about the dimensions of the New Jerusalem and we think, man, God's made a lot of space for me and that small band of people who agree with me on everything. We're just going to be rattling around in there. Humble yourself. There are more Christians than you can imagine. There are more Christians than you know. And there are going to be more Christians than you or I could ever fathom. There are people all around you who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. There are people all around this world who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we listen to the news and really, if we're honest, we say, man, it's, nobody's saved. Or, or is it just me? We walk around and we talk to people and we meet people and we just say that just, no, there just aren't any Christians. We turn on the television and we hear blasphemy and heresy and we just say, man, the gospel's just not being preached. We've talked about this before, but please, let me caution you again. Stop talking about what the church is not doing. Stop talking about what the church is not. Stop talking about where the church has failed. Just stop it, because it ain't true. There is a true church. 
There are true Christians. There are people who believe the gospel. There are people who are being shaped in righteousness. There are people who are following hard after Jesus Christ. There are churches that are holding to sound doctrine. There are preachers out there who are living their lives devoted to Christ and devoted to the sheep whom they've been called to shepherd. Just because you don't know them doesn't mean they don't exist. You have no idea. None whatsoever. So just stop it. Oh, if the church would only. The church is everything that Christ says she is. Amen? Not only is the reach of the gospel so significant that those who are saved are more numerous than you can imagine, but they're also more diverse than you can imagine. This is something that, an area where we as Americans have an advantage. There are other areas where we don't have an advantage, but this is an area where we as Americans have an advantage, especially those of us who live here in the greater Houston area. One of the two or three most ethnically diverse uh, parts of the country or major cities in the United States. And so we, we have a distinct advantage here. We think this way where most people just simply cannot. The church throughout most of history and even today throughout most of the world is monoethnic. Most of the Christians throughout history and most of the Christians in the world today gather among a group of believers who look and smell and talk just exactly like they do. It's not like what we experience in the United States and especially in a place like Houston. It's just not like that. In most of the countries in the world, they don't walk around and see just mass varieties of people. It just doesn't happen. I remember the first time that... um, Trey and, and, and I went to, to Zambia. And so there we were, we were, we were there. We had been in Zambia, I guess, for a couple of days. And we, you know, we were walking around and doing all the things that we were doing. And we went to church, to Kabwada Baptist Church. There were Comrade Mbewe is the pastor. And we went to, to church at Kabwada, and an interesting thing happened. A white person walked up. And Trey and I kind of looked at each other. Not a word was spoken between the two of us. But each of us knew what the other was thinking. That's the first white person I've seen in three days. (laughs) Most of the world is like that. In most of the world, people never see outsiders, strangers, foreigners. In most of the world, people only see other people with skin pigmentation almost identical to their skin pigmentation. But here, before the throne, when John looks at the result of God's sealing of his people and bringing them through the tribulation, he sees not only an innumerable multitude, but listen to what he says. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Remember what we said about that number four? We understand that number three is both the rhythm of the letter, it's also the number that refers to God, but that number four, you remember what that number refers to? Let let me see if we can sort of refresh our memory, because we saw it earlier on in the chapter. And this, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. You see, the number four in apocalyptic literature, and particularly in Revelation, represents the entirety of the earth. When you see those four corners, again, we talked about it on last week, God's not saying to his people that the earth is square, nor did God's people take that away from the scripture that the earth is square. But that number four represents the totality of the earth. All four directions, the north, the south, the east, the west, it's the totality of the earth. So when John describes this multitude that is innumerable, 
how does he describe this multitude? From every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. Four. He could have used any number. All hues, all regions, all whatever. He could have used five descriptors or six. But he uses four. And he uses it for a particular reason. That the gospel will reach all the earth. The gospel will reach all the earth. The gospel will reach all the earth. Jesus says this, does he not? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, and Samaria, and even in the remotest parts of the world. Places like America. Amen. We are part of the fulfillment of that promise. Now, usually we're so egocentric that we think we're the center of the promise, you know, and so we read that and we go, you know, in Jerusalem, and that, that's right here where we live, and all Judea, that's kind of our whole region, and, you know, Samaria, that's where those other people are, the remotest parts of the earth, you know, that's kind of like over there in the Middle East, and no, actually, the Middle East is where the promise was made. That's the center of the universe, not us. We're the remotest parts of the earth. We're not the origin of the promise or the epicenter of the promise. We're the fulfillment on the outskirts of the promise. Amen? There's something else here. And this goes back to why he uses that number that he uses before. Because here's the question. Why use the tribes of Israel in the first part of the chapter. Yeah, I mean, even though the list is mixed up, why, why use that? Why use that number? Why, why use 144,000? Why use 12 times 12 times 1,000? Why make the direct reference to Israel? Why do that if what you mean is this innumerable multi-ethnic multitude? Here's why. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed." The promise to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12 included all the nations of the earth. Don't just take my word for it. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Why does John give us that number, symbolic of the tribes of Israel, along with the other 12, the people of God in the New Testament, in referring to this mixed multitude, this multi-ethnic multitude that comes through the tribulation? Why does he point to ethnic Israel at all? Because the Gentiles are the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. That's why. And so here we have those sealed on earth. And there is a picture of this promise that God makes to his people in the Old Testament that is not really fulfilled completely until those of us who are Gentiles are grafted in as we find in Romans chapter 11. The reason that he uses this picture is because we are, as Paul says in Galatians 6, the Israel of God. I am Israel. You are Israel. Unless we run off from here, 
beating up the straw man known as replacement theology. That is not the Reformed belief. The Reformed belief is not, nor has it been, that the church has replaced Israel, but that we have been grafted in to Israel, that we are Israel, that we are the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, who is the father of the faithful. This is what Jesus tried to communicate to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Those who are sons of, his, of Abraham are his sons by faith. This is why Paul says not all Israel is Israel. But those by faith. Therefore, there is no contradiction for John to first use this number and a reference to ethnic Israel and then come back and refer to this multi-ethnic innumerable multitude. Which is it? Is it ethnic Israel? Or is it the totality of those who will come to faith in Christ? The answer, yes. Which is it? Is it the lion? Or is it the lamb? The answer is yes. Same pattern he uses here. Here's what this also means. The reach of the gospel means that it is the hope of the nations. The gospel is the hope of the nations. There's all this talk about spreading democracy. That's not the hope of the nations. Amen? That's not the hope of the nations. The hope of the nations is the spread of the gospel. Aside from the reach of the gospel, there's also this picture of the power of the gospel. Notice what happens. Look, look at this. What's the question in chapter 6 and verse 17? Let's read it again. Let's go back to verse uh, 16. B. They're calling from the mountains. They say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Do you see that? Hide us from the one seated on the throne and hide us from the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Hide us from the one seated on the throne. Hide us from the Lamb. Because the one seated on the throne and the Lamb are pouring out their wrath in Revelation chapter 6. And who can stand before the one on the throne and the Lamb who are pouring out their wrath on sinful humanity and the earth. Now, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, what? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Hide us from the throne and from the Lamb. Because who can stand before the throne and the Lamb? Good question. Here's the answer. Those who are sealed on the earth and who as a result of being sealed on the earth make it through the great tribulation. Those are the ones who can stand before the Lamb and before the throne. What this means is that it's the gospel that transforms us. And it is by the power of the gospel that we endure. It first means that the gospel is able to make us righteous. Both the declared righteousness that we have and the actual righteousness that is produced as we're sanctified. So both justification and sanctification bring us to this place of glorification. And that's what this is here. This is the glorification part of our salvation. So we have our justification and our adoption, our sanctification, which is real. And the result of that is we're clothed in white robes. 
Those white robes we later on find are righteous deeds. So it's not just the declaration of our righteousness that have us standing before God, but it is the actual righteousness that is brought about as a result, as a natural outgrowth of that justification. We are declared righteous and we are made righteous. And it's because we are made righteous that we stand before his throne and before the Lamb. The gospel is that powerful. There is no one on earth who in and of himself can endure the seals. No one. But there are those who are set apart by God, who will endure. Here's the other thing that we know. It means that they make it through the tribulation, not that they're raptured out of the tribulation. We make it through the tribulation. We are not raptured out of the tribulation. We make it through the tribulation. We are not raptured out of the tribulation, which we know because the tribulation is now not coming. It's now. All of these things we see now. The storms and the earthquakes and the wars and the famine and the death of multiplied multitudes and thousands upon thousands of people. It's now. How do you watch the slaughter in Rwanda of Hutus and Tutsis? Bodies that are being killed to such a great degree that there's no time to bury them and say that the tribulation is coming. How do we see the Holocaust and say that the tribulation is coming? How do we see the wars that we've seen in the past and that we see in our day and say that the tribulation is coming? How on earth? It is here. Everything that we're reading about, it is here, and it is only intensifying. Will it intensify before the end of the age? Yes, it will. As will the advance of the gospel, by the way. But it's here, and it's now. We're saved through it. That's the power of the gospel, to keep us in the midst of tribulation and save us through tribulation. How do you endure when sick, insane people do sick, insane things by being sealed by the one on the throne and the Lamb? How do you endure when the very earth groans and shakes by being sealed by the one on the throne and the Lamb? How do you endure when the winds of heaven blow through a place and bring with it torrential rains and hurricanes come and wipe out entire towns? How do you endure that? by being sealed by the one on the throne and by the Lamb? How do you endure when a tsunami can wipe across entire villages and wipe out everything by being sealed by the one on the throne and by the Lamb? How do you endure when madmen walk into schools and kill babies? Or when they do it in abortion clinics? By being sealed by the one on the throne and by the Lamb. That's how. That's the only way. There is no other way to endure what we endure and to stand faultless before the throne on that day. This is the power of the gospel. And then here's the beauty. This is the beauty of the gospel. 
Its reach is magnificent, and its power is awesome. But look at its beauty. You see, in chapter 5, we did not hear the song of the redeemed. Now, the redeemed speak in heaven. There's a new song in heaven that's never been there before. Folks, angels are not redeemed. Amen? And so here is our God before the throne. And we see this in chapter 5. Here is our God on his throne. Here is the Lamb. And here are the angels and these 24 heavenly creatures. Watch what happens here. Standing before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The angels don't know that song because they're not saved. See, the beauty of the gospel is that it changes the very worship of heaven. God throughout all eternity past has been worshiped and glorified and worthy of worship and glory. But this great God has made man in his image and has redeemed man through the blood of his son on the cross. And as a result of that, heaven is occupied with new worshipers, with a new song. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. We we get a glimpse of it when we gather here as the people of God. This is, you know, sometimes when I use what preachers sometimes call my sanctified imagination. And I listen to us sing. Especially in those moments where the music drops out and you hear our voices. I have this picture in my mind of angels who just hush for a minute. Because they can't sing what we can sing. They've not experienced what we've experienced. They've only been able to see it, but you and I have been transformed by it. We are redeemed by it. We are changed by it. This also changes what the angels sing. They sang this sevenfold chorus in chapter 5. And again, seven is the number of completeness or completion. So they are offering complete worship to God, but they change their sevenfold song. In their sevenfold song, what do they say? Look at verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Here it is. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What's changed? They took out wealth and replaced it with thanksgiving. It's a new song. The angels had to add thanksgiving to their song as they look at the people of God sealed on the earth and redeemed in heaven. Not even the angels can worship the same way as the result of our redemption. The gospel changes earth and heaven forever. And only the gospel does that. This is a glorious picture. 
for multiple reasons. And we haven't even gotten into the juicy part of it where there's the interaction in heaven. And God wipes away all the tears from our eyes. We haven't even gotten to the part where the very residue of this great tribulation is wiped off of us. And yet we've already seen enough to be overwhelmingly grateful for the reach of the gospel. Incomprehensible. The power of the gospel. That in the midst of a world where every last creature deserves to be utterly destroyed as the seals are opened, God, in his sovereign grace, reaches down, seals, preserves, and saves an innumerable multitude in order that his glory in heaven might be magnified all the more. This is our God. This is our gospel. This is our hope. And this is a mere shadow of the reality that is yet to come for those who endure to the end. Let's pray.